All right. Welcome to Fireside Chats. I am Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I am suspecting, in fact, I know for a fact, having seen some of the attendees, that uh, you're well acquainted with the Library Company. We're grateful for your engagement. Uh, but for those of you who might be just sort of learning about us, we are an independent research library. We were originally kind of at Benjamin Franklin, but today we have terrific program specializations in early Americana, print and visual culture, um, uh, women's history, African-American history, and political economy and business history. Enough of that from me. Uh, so we are joined tonight by Jordan Alexander Stein, who is professor of English and comparative literature at Fordham University, my alma mater. His publications include Avidly Reads Theory and the volume he co-edited with Laura Langer Cohen, Early African-American Print Culture. Dr. Stein's research has been supported by a number of agencies, including, and especially, grants at HSP and an NEH postdoctoral fellowship at the Library Company. The research he conducted here eventuated in When Novels Were Books, which was published this year by Harvard University Press. Um, more about which he will discuss tonight. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. Um, the library company is my absolute favorite place to do research. And although I cannot be in the space, it is wonderful to share some kind of virtual space. Um, also, I want to thank the folks who are here. I have the list of attendees. Um, I see friends from all over. I see um, people whose work I really admire. I see people I'm, I'm excited to get to talk to. So, so thank you all for being here on what is like a deeply weird night in America. Um, I was saying to Will, I'm, my, my, my joke is that I'm, I'm used to being more interesting than Arizona, but maybe not tonight. In any case, thank you for being here. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my screen with you, and that should um, give you the PowerPoint. Um, so uh, what I thought I would do is I'm going to talk about this book that I wrote and um, I'm going to do it in kind of a summary way. So I thought I would give you the kind of opening anecdote, which is an anecdote I enjoy. I'll summarize the argument and then I'll, I'll do some show and tell. I'll walk you through some slides. This should take about 25 or 30 minutes. Um, so uh, the first play, the place the book begins is with Samuel Johnson. And in January of 1759, Samuel Johnson writes a letter. To, uh, to his fellow Londoner and his publisher, William Strahan, and he requests a book. Johnson is at work on um, a tale that becomes, um, there you go, Rasselas, the Prince of Abyssinia. This is a fictional narrative. Um, and this is eventually published in two volumes in uh, a small format. It's in octavo, a little book. Johnson, uh, five years before, had been the author of the Dictionary of the English Language, which is uh, which substantially um, established his reputation. It was a major undertaking. It was a much larger book. It was printed as a folio. Um, and so uh, books that are printed in larger formats are understood typically, and certainly in the 18th century, were understood typically to be much more prestigious, much more important. Johnson has this established his credentials with the Dictionary of the English Language in 1755. So the question that I open my book with is why is Rasselas then printed as an octavo, as a small format book, which is less prestigious, less uh, significant? Let me um, pause here to just talk a little bit about what the difference in size actually means, because, um, because as you're looking at the screen, right, uh, and something that happens with the digitization of books is that um, every Every book appears to be the same size in your in your PDF. 
um, when I do these, or when I'm able to do these kinds of presentations um, in a rare books room, uh, the size distinction becomes immediately obvious because you're looking at books of objects of two different sizes in the virtual space. It's a little harder to do that. So I just want to underscore what I'm talking about. Um, the size of a book depends on how many times the paper that was used to print it is folded. A folio is folded once to produce four pages per sheet. A quarto is folded um, four times, octavo eight times, and it goes from there. The reason that, um, and some of you may know this, those of you who, who are familiar with the history of printing, but for those of you who aren't, um, the reason that it matters not what size the paper is, but how many times it's folded, is because in the pan press period, when printing presses look like this, the, um, the paper tray, which is that uh, horizontal element there below where the press is, the paper tray is a standard size. So the paper that goes in there has to always be the same size. It would be um, more complicated to produce uh, trays that are of varying sizes than it would be to just fold the paper. And this is why, um, this is why books work the way they do. Um, this is another example. Um, this is actually from um, the Franklin Court um, Historical Reconstruction in Philadelphia. This is a gentleman using a printing press, and you can see the paper in the tray. Um, but again, this is the this is the issue with with size. All right. Um, Rasslis, as I said, is an octavo. You can see with the scale here of the hand. It's a small format book. The Dictionary of the English Language is a large book, much more prestigious. The, so the question on the table is why are these, why if Johnson is very successful in a large format and a prestigious format, why then print his next work in a small format? The answer that I give in the opening of my monograph on novels for books is that um, the size of a book in the 18th century indicates not just its uh, prestige, not just its importance, not just its significance, but I argue its genre that size formats, not definitively, but generally track with genre in ways that book historians and literary scholars have not fully considered. Uh, printing Rasselas as an octavo in this kind of small format likens it to many books whose genre it resembles: fictional works, character-driven works, continuous narratives. Um, and this includes many of the candidates for the kind of still unresolved um, winner of the designation first novel in English. Uh, Pamela by Samuel Richardson, Oronoko by Afro Ben, Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe, all of these works were also printed in Octavo. My book, When Novels Were Books, um, argues that the history of the book and the history of the novel are related histories. It takes seriously the fact, usually beneath notice, that novels are, and for most of the first three centuries of their existence, have been books. The reason that um, this fact, the materiality, the physical properties of a book are usually beneath notice has to do with the fact that the history of the novel is typically studied as a history of the evolution of literary form. It's not the, the, the object, the material aspects of books that matter, it's their contents. A very foundational version of this argument appeared in 1957 in a book called The Rise of the Novel by Ian Watt, which um, as you can see from the subtitle lays out uh, as, as its major examples, Defoe, Richardson, and Fielding. Um, Watt argues that the novel is a form in the sense that it's an epistemology. It's a, un a unique way of knowing something and of representing that knowledge. 
um, in his own, oh no. Sorry, hold on one second, slide's not working. Nope. Mm. Well, I had a quote from Watt. Um, I'm sorry, technical difficulty. Um, well, in any case, the quote's not loading. Um, Watt says that the thing that is significant about the English novel is not just um, what it represents, but the way it represents it. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's um, one of the kind of famous summary quotes from, from his study. 1957 was a long time ago. It's more than 60 years ago. And yet the terms that Watt sets up that the novel is an epistemology that it's best uh, attended to in terms of its form is something that has been and continues to be hugely influential in studies of the novel. Um, these are just two, I actually had more pictures here, but they're not rendering. Um, but these are just two of the really excellent studies in the last few years that focus, that continue to focus on literary form in relationship to the English novel. Um, I'm not against these works. I think they're fantastic, but they're also, um, my argument about materiality is trying to add to or supplement the formal account of what the novel is. In, um, oh, wrong side. Okay. In When Novels for Books, I take a long view. I look at the changing patterns of book ownership that begin in the 17th century. And this is the period when um, English common readers would begin to own books. In other words, people who are not scholars or gentlemen begin to own books. Um, I look at, so I start in the 17th century as patterns for book ownership change, and I take it all the way kind of to the beginning of the beginning, middle of the 19th century with the invention of literary criticism, which is the thing that starts to tell stories about the history of the novel. At the early end of the story in the 17th century, I show the ways that novels are representing characters, that is to say, um, vulnerable figures. Um, this is an uh, illustration, this is 1755, uh, Joseph Highmore illustration of Pamela undressing, right? And um, the vulnerability, the physical, the nudity, but also the physical vulnerability to which she's subject in the sexual assault that this follows the scene. Um, I argue that th these kinds of bodily vulnerability, characterological vulnerability um, that novels represent with some amount of consistency uh, show up in the kinds of religious books that common readers owned for a hundred years prior. The claim here is that for a reader in the middle of the 18th century to pick up a novel, they would experience something formally as well as materially continuous with the religious books they would have read and owned. In the modern world, we understand religion and novels to belong to different categories. We experience um, religion as a matter, a religious book as a matter of piety and a novel as a matter of secular entertainment. The argument that I unfold in When Novels Were Books is that this just wasn't true in the 18th century. It becomes true in the 19th century and then that history is retrospectively projected backward, but it absolutely was not true for most of the 18th century. Um, where we modern readers experience a disjuncture between religion and, and fiction. Again, 18th century readers did not. That's the argument of the book. Um, what I wanted to do is to now walk you through a couple of examples um, that I'm interested in, in this kind of long view of, of, of the changing um, usage of books um, in Europe through the 18th century. The image that you're looking at is uh, just a page from the Gutenberg Bible. Um, this, many of you may have seen these kinds of images before. This is printed in Latin. This page happens to be um, illuminated. 
you'll notice that although there are kind of headers at the top of the page, so we know that we're in Genesis, right? There is nothing about the layout of this book that orients us to kind of chapter and verse. We are used to being able to read the Bible in a manner that allows us to kind of open it at random. And especially for Protestants, we can open it at random and, and satiate or extrapolate on particular verses. The thing that is interesting about the first printed Bible is that um, that was not a feature or a convention that was available. This gradually changes. And by the, so Gutenberg Bible is um, 1450, about four, there's uncertainty between 1453 and 1455. Um, about a hundred years later in the 16th century, um, in, when you start to get Bibles printed in the vernacular, um, this is an Olivetan Bible um, printed in France, but you see there's a much greater use of ornamental type. This is, uh, there's subheadings, there's marginal notations. This is a book that's printed to allow people to dip into as they need. Um, so, so what the format, the layout of books is doing is it's uh, adjusting, it's developing in order to accommodate certain kinds of reading practices. Accommodate, but arguably also encourage, although um, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg game here. The, um, these conventions, these conventions um, translate into, are borrowed by books that are not Bibles in the, um, in the late 17th century. And the example I have is from, this is from uh, Thomas Shepard's um, BC Sabbatica. And this is, so this is, um, this is a book of religious doctrine. It's, we could imagine it's biblical commentary, but it's not a Bible. And yet it's being laid out with the use of ornamental type, with um, the use of subheadings, indications, marginal notations. It looks very much visually like the Olivetan Bible, even though it's printed in English and that is printed in French. This borrowing of um, what we would call graphic designs, but what are uh, typolo typolo typographical, typographical conventions, this borrowing of typographical conventions um, is part of how the genre of the book is established. We know that this is a religious book in part because it looks like a religious book, never mind what its contents are. This is an argument about the materiality of books. You might be thinking that, um, well, you know, there are a lot of 17th century books and maybe a lot of them look like this. I'm gonna give you a different example. Um, this is uh, also a religious book. It's a treatise, it's a, it's a printed sermon you see that it's laid out quite differently. It's a continuous narrative. Um, it has uh, space in the margins, but there are no notations. Presumably a motivated reader could make their own notations in their own study guide. We know what page, we on, page we're on and what the, the topic of the book is, but we don't know exactly what chapter we're in. Um, right? This is a book whose use, whose genre, but also whose use is imagined to be different. And lest this just seems like a difference between two books, both this book that you're looking at and PC Sabatica were published um, in London, both in London, both in the same year, 1649, and both by the same printer, John Rothwell. In other words, this really, the, the, the choice of layout is a choice. And these are conventions that I argue um, in, in my study have to do with the genres that the printers imagined these books to belong to. So this example of Bibles and, and related books is a way of just giving you, these are, these are just slides I happen to have that the ones I discuss in the book 
but there are ways of giving you an example of how the materiality, the physicality of books, not just in terms of size, but also in terms of what's on the page, um, are linked to the genre of books. I wanna give you one more example that runs through a couple of chapters that, um, that I enjoy. Um, and it has to do with the kind of, it, it's a kind of a hinge example in my study because um, a lot of these 17th century books that are borrowing conventions from Bibles can be read, uh, unlike the one you're looking at, more like this, they can be read um, at random. You can open them and at any moment you sort of are oriented to the text, you know where you might be. But they're not necessarily designed to be read continuously. And there are a lot of these books. Um, many, uh, there's a whole kind of category of books that historians know as devotional steady sellers. These are popular books, books that um, ordinary readers would buy. They're books of religion, but they're, they're, they're thick. Um, one historian calls them short tubby bricks. That's Stephen Foster. It's a phrase that's turned up in um, most of the reviews of my book. People really like that phrase, short tubby bricks, but that's a lot of what these books look like. But um, these are not books that are owned by readers who necessarily have a lot of leisure time. And so they're, the fact that you can open them at random and be oriented to the contents of the book is, is understood to be a boon. I argue that it's out of these devotional books that um, what become early novels develop, at least uh, generically and in terms of format. The hinge text is um, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress in a lot of different ways um, here we go. Pilgrim's Progress in a lot of different ways shows continuity with these devotional study sellers that, buy, that borrowed conventions um, from early Bibles, but it's a continuous narrative. That's its distinction. It's a continuous narrative. It's meant to be read more or less cover to cover. And that's the thing that uh, makes it a kind of transitional object between these devotional works and early novels. Um, one of the uh, things that I enjoy talking about um, in, in my book, and I'm, I'm pulling from a couple of different chapters and summarizing here, so, so I don't have a particular uh, example, but, um, but Pilgrim's Progress is something I track because it's a work that's never been out of print. It was abundant. It was first published in 1678. It was abundantly reprinted in the 17th century, even though it appeared in the last quarter of it. Um, and it's never been out of print. It, it's probably been translated into more languages than almost any book in the history of the world. One of the things that I enjoy doing in When Novels or Books is trying to track a lot of these different material manifestations of Pilgrim's Progress. Sometimes it gets shortened, sometimes it gets illustrated, um, but sometimes it gets repackaged. Um, so here's an example of what um, the book looked like. This is, I believe, an original 17th century binding. Not an easy thing to lay one's hands on. Um, and you can see from the kind of gloved hand that it is, it's a small format book. Um, but it's a short tubby brick. It looks physically like a lot of these devotional study sellers in whose class and in whose genre, I argue, it, it belongs and from which it emerged. Pilgrim's Progress, however, gets repackaged because it's reprinted so many times, it gets repackaged and it stops um, looking in many ways like a devotional study seller. Here's an 18th century example. This does look like it's been rebound um, but it, this um, is a slightly fancier cover. First of all, it doesn't kind of—it's not—it's not extremely elaborate uh, in its design, but it is somewhat. Um, sorry, um, getting a call. Um, let me give you a 19th-century example. Um, right, this is a this is another Pilgrim's Progress. It's illustrated edition. It has a much more uh, ornamental and elaborate cover. 
Um, this is it's you can see it's it's a little less fat. It's it's uh, it's a little taller um, and skinnier. This is um, packaged. This is Pilgrim's Progress. This is this devotional narrative from the 17th century that has been repackaged and repurposed to look in many ways like a 19th century novel. It's from here that we end up with a kind of Pilgrim's Progress moderate, uh, marketed in, as it is in our modern world as just another um, textbook, as just another paperback narrative, like so many novels uh, in this series. This um, transition, in the, this, this evolution in the physical presentation of the object is part of what I'm interested in because these different objects, I argue, class the same book in relation to different genres. Those are the examples that I have. Um, there are others in the book and I would certainly be happy to, to talk about it, um, but um, I'd love to turn it over to questions and, um, and see what people are thinking. Thank you so much, Jordan. Um, so I'm gonna start with a question uh, and then I'm gonna encourage anyone else who's got a much more incisive question than me to dive in. Um, I'm thinking, you know, in terms of the secularization um, uh, argument that comes up in your introduction, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating there, you know, which I think you paraphrase nicely here, but, but just to recap to make sure that I've got it, is that, um, Basically, as you have a Protestant press that starts to emerge in the mid to late 18th century, that breaks away from the broader um, print market. And so the novel is, it's secular as a product of changes in that religious publishing area. And I'm curious to know, like when you were talking about um, you know, the two different editions of Pilgrim's Progress, one of which looks, uh, as you said, you know, it is, um, you know, short tubby brick. Um, mm -hmm. It has those wide margins and then it sort of elongates and I'm assuming the margins maybe shrink a little. Like, are there other pieces of that broader print market that this mm -hmm. emerging novel is drawing inspiration from now that it's sort of disassociated mm -hmm. from that Protestant mm -hmm. press? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, um, and it, it, it's a complication of, of the argument in the book that I that I minimized in this discussion, but I'm happy to elaborate it. Um, I spent a lot of time, and I telegraphed this a little bit in, in my comments, but I spent a lot of time thinking about how, in fact, um, religious books and novels were understood to be more continuous than different mm. for, for, for most of the 18th century. And again, Pilgrim Progress is this kind of hinge text, which is often understood to be an early novel, but that's a that's a retroactive classification. It's not what this text would have looked like, I think, to readers at the time. How could it? But um, but what? But these things kind of coexist. Um, uh, what we understand now to be novels seem to emerge out of the media ecology that, um, at least in, in the Anglophone world, that that um, religious books largely dominate. In the last quarter of the 18th century, things start to shift a little bit and, and for a couple of different reasons, but one of them is that um, you start to get the rise of philanthropic societies. So these are, um, these are, are, I mean, it's the origin of modern philanthropy. Um, it's not the Salvation Army, but it's things like that, things that are, are kind of religious in motive, but not specifically aligned with a particular church that are collecting money to do charity work. 
Um, and uh, many religious societies, uh, the, they're known to historians as voluntary associations, which is the term that I use in the, in the book. But many voluntary associations um, decide that like what would be good works would be to pull their money and print religious texts to hand out. Hmm. Um, some want to print Bibles, but it turns out it's really expensive to print Bibles um, because they use a lot of paper and paper is always the most expensive aspect of book production. So people get interested in tracts and short works, um, excerpts of things. And, and, but because these are largely given away for free, um, there's always an interest in reducing cost. One way that um, voluntary associations start to reduce costs is they start to hire their own printers. They have like, they, they, so they're printing in-house. In the 19th century, you get the, especially in the United States, you get the rise of tract societies like the American Tract Society. Um, this, is, this is what these phenomena that I'm describing kind of turn into. Um, but that's, you know, a couple of decades on. Um, at the moment, so, so um, people like um, uh, John and Charles Wesley, the Methodists, um, get very interested in this kind of printing and they have a big enterprise. There are other um, smaller societies um, and they, they often have like predictably 18th century names like the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel the Society in Scotland for the propagation of the gospel um, and things like that. But um, they um, are increasingly working with printers in house at the moment that, so I'm not explaining this totally clearly. They had been working with um, printers in London, job printers. They're taking on job, you know, the printer does the job, prints your books, hands them back to you. Printer doesn't sell them out of his own workshop uh, or bookstore, but hands them back to the person who ordered them. That's job printing. Um, job printing dries up because uh, voluntary associations are doing this more and more in-house. Um, this interestingly is the moment that, um, this is the moment when religious organizations and novels, novels which had at this point existed for 50 years, recognize themselves as being in competition because they're actually belonging to different uh, market shares um, or what we would now retroactively call market shares. Um, and so the kind of height of anti-novel discourse where you have ministers denouncing novel reading from the pulpit, all of this comes in the 1790s, which is really, whereas um, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, 1678, um, Robinson Crusoe, 1719, right? So these things had existed, Pamela, 1741. So these things had existed for a long time before they're getting denounced. And it seems to me that the economic kind of back end is part of the, the fact that these different kinds of books are no longer sharing a genre or, or a printer or um, a bookshelf, like this is what is promoting um, the denunciation. It's actually a sense of competition. And that's, mm -hmm. the, that's, that's the kind of secularization argument is that it shows up really late, but it has to do not with the fact that the novel is kind of born secular so much as that religious publishing subtracts itself from the London market um, and starts to compete with that market. Mm -hmm. so, not, not, so whereas Ian Watt called it the rise of the novel, I'm interested in a little bit of like the novels kind of what's left over. Um, yeah. and, and that is ironically what, what is the condition of his ascendancy. Yeah, and while I have the floor and waiting for other questions to come in, you do a really wonderful job sort of distinguishing between the history of the novel, the novel being the sort of icon of national identity, you know, some of which I think was superimposed after the fact, of course. And then you have the history of the book, which is fundamentally international. Yeah. You've been talking about London printers. 
Uh, does does your project take you into U.S.-based printers, and are they operating under different constraints with different motives? That yes, um, yes, and yes. Um, I um, I came to the library company on a postdoctoral fellowship in two thousand nine to um, to tell a story about printing in the eighteenth century in the United States. And what I rapidly learned, I mean, a, a lot of things, but one of the things I rapidly learned was that. Um, bookstores in places like New York and Philadelphia in the 1740s are selling a lot of books that are printed in London. Um, and it has to do, there, there are economic arguments. Um, uh, Jim Green and Peter Solly Ross's book on Benjamin Franklin lays this out really persuasively. Um, but it's just because paper is expensive because um, in colonies, in colonial economies, these kinds of materials are more expensive because they're more rare type paper presses, the labor and the know-how to do the work. For all of those reasons, it's always going to be more expensive to print larger and longer works in the colonies than it is, than it's going to be to ship them in from London. Um, by the time of the American Revolution in uh, 1776, when importation slows down, 50% of what's being printed in London is being exported to colonial markets. The biggest ones are North America, the Caribbean and India. Hmm. Um, but but a lot of London printing is being exported out of London. Um, so but anyway that that so so this is what, like like how did I become somebody who's interested in London? Well, it was because the archive kind of led me there. Hmm. Having said that, um, yes, I spend a lot of time. I, I continue to have some stripes as Americanist, and I spend a lot of time trying to think about the relationship between colonial printing and metropolitan printing. Um, I'm very interested if if books like um, early novels like Pamela are being printed in London, they're being pirated in Dublin, they're being um, shipped and, and smuggled into the United States and, and existing in markets here. I'm very interested in how readers take these things up. If we talk about the reception of Pamela, are we talking about the London reception? Are we talking about the provincial reception, the colonial reception? Because um, while all of these spaces are sharing books, they're not necessarily sharing like the New Yorker, right? They're not sharing like periodical discourse and ways of, of uh, reflexively commenting on books. And so I, I try to track these things um, very much is the answer. I wonder if I can just sort of invite you to take us into sort of another one of your threads and then I'm gonna jump over to questions here. Um, but one is about uh, character, which is something we associate with novels and you tie it to Protestant confessional writings. Can I ask you to unpack that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, I, I said that, you know, the dominant arguments about the rise of the novel are formal arguments and I'm trying to make a materialist argument. This does not mean I think that formal arguments are wrong. I think that there's a lot to learn from them, as I hope I, I already indicated in my admiration for folks like Caroline Levy and Anna Kornblu. Um, but I think that, um, I think that there's more to the story. So what I tried to do in order to make good on that, um, what I tried to do in the book is to sort of say, uh, let's pick a formal feature that is strongly identified with the novel. And the one that I came up with is character. Novels tend to have characters. Um, whereas like, for example, like lyric poems don't necessarily. Um, so I, I tried to track the evolution of character and uh, this formal aspect. And I tried to say, well, if, you know, if a novel like Pamela and a missionary diary, like the, the life of David Brainerd are both being printed in the same kind of small formats by the same printers, right? Is that a coincidence? Or are there some kind of formal continuities between works that we now recognize to be novels and works that we now recognize not to be novels? And um, character was the, the test case. And, you know, to make a long story very short, like, yes, there are a lot of continuities. 
<laughs> at least that's what I try to make. <laughs> and of course, people need to buy the book, which I plugged in the chat feature. <laughs> um, really explore all that nuance. <laughs> find out more. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we have a question from Paul Erickson. Hi, Paul. Um, what uh, percentage of mid-18th century books in England were printed in folio? What sorts of texts, other than Johnson's Dictionary, were printed in that format? Um, that's a super great, interesting, and fair question. Um, I don't have, I don't know is the answer. I don't know, at least I don't have like statistical numbers, data off the top of my head. Um, folio printing, what I can say is that it is just simply very expensive. And so it's largely reserved for works that are understood, that are either subvened, and this happens, you know, a gentleman scholar writes a book and is willing to kind of support the publisher, uh, the printer and publisher in the publication, that happens. But, um, um, Peter Sully Russell once said to me, all publishing and vanity publishing. And there may be something from an economic angle, and there may be something to that. Um, but that said, um, usually um, scholarly books, um, Bibles, um, works that are understood to be learned or important. Um, there's a fantastic book by um, Margareta de Grazia um, that I cite several times, but that I absolutely love called Shakespeare Verbatim. And what she does is she studies the 18th century publication of Shakespeare. Wait, you say Shakespeare lived in the 16th century. That's right. But he was um, reprinted in the 18th century. And it is these subsequent editions that she argues um, uh, do a lot to make his reputation. The fact that Shakespeare was published in folio is actually in the history of folio publishing just super weird because plays were not the kind of text, generically, were not the kind of text that show up in this format. The fact that they did seem to lend and has historically lent an enormous amount of importance to Shakespeare. But, but what Margaret Degrassi does so brilliantly is she tries to lay out a kind of materialist argument. There are the publishing history of Shakespeare reveals things about why Shakespeare's reputation takes off where and when it does. It's an interesting argument. My take on it, my riff on it, my dependence on it is simply to say that um, there are just generically kinds of things that aren't printed in certain formats um, or aren't typically. And so plays or uh, fictions, poetry, these things are all gonna be um, small format, uh, oriental tales. Um, it's also the case that, um, and, I, and there may be more questions, but, um, and I have a tendency to talk too much, so cut me off. But, um, but I was gonna say that um, folios um, are more expensive to print, but they can therefore kind of only be owned by, purchased by, in order for the publisher to make back the cost of paper, they have to sell at a higher price point. So they're owned by people who have ready money. But it's also the case that a folio is not the kind of book that you can like stick in a pocket. It's not the kind of book that you can read on your lunch break. Um, it's, you know, it, it's meant to exist in a different kind of more, more learned, more erudite, more reserved space. And I think the part of the reason that um, hymn books, uh, devotional works, our psalters are printed in smaller formats is because they're, they're devotional books that are meant for people who don't have uh, designated reading time, but that are kind of, you know, they're, they're works that can, as it were, fit in a pocket. And, and that matters, I think. So, so part of the answer, Paul, is genre, and part of the answer is imagined use. And I think, and also cost, and all of these things are going together to kind of figure out which, to de determine which, um, which kinds of books, which kinds of genres end up in which kinds of formats. So um, I don't have a direct answer, but that's, if I were going to answer your question, that's how I would answer it. Quick question from Caroline Schimmel, who asked, when did Harvard buy Pamela? When, when did who? 
When did Harvard buy Pamela? Um, I don't know. Oh, Harvard. Um, I don't know. I don't know actually off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, listen, some, uh, some of my questions require a little more digging. We have a comment from Carrie Bryan. It's a nice one. Uh, this has been a most interesting presentation. It never before occurred to me to consider what, if, or how relationship between Pilgrim's Progress and Pamela. The common ground is the basic story of a protagonist confronted by various moral challenges and finding a path to redemption. But then we go from Richardson to Fielding fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, continuous, what I, what I can say is that, I mean, continuous narrative um, had, what, what makes, in my account, what makes Pilgrim's Progress really kind of interesting and special is that it, it presents the kinds of piety and the kinds of concerns that exist in devotional books, but it does so as a, as a continuous narrative. Readers really seemed to jive with this. People really seemed to like it. The shift from um, kind of desultory, desultory or random access reading, um, where the codex um, is a random access technology. I can open any book to any page at any time. If I were, for example, reading a scroll um, or scrolling through a website, I couldn't necessarily do that. I would have to, have, I would have to be motivated to do that. Um, so the random access feature of the codex is something that it seems like readers are using in the 17th century until more or less they sort of suddenly stop. And why people get interested in continuous narrative is not something I've been able to answer, but they really, um, they really seem to. But these kinds of continuous narratives exist. And so um, while there are important kind of thematic continuities, I think between Pilgrim's Progress and Pamela, there are other kinds of continuous narratives in circulation and fielding is certainly, um, certainly drawing on these things. Um, one thing to just observe is that um, Richardson, in, in, a, in a kind of famous letter, he writes that he invented a new species of writing. Um, and that's a, and, and, and people who are invested in the kind of rise of the novel, invention of the novel story, have quoted this line often, but it seems to me that, um, one, readers don't tend to like things that are wholly new. They like things that are innovations on what they know. And two, if you start to trace the formal features of Pamela, the material features of Pamela, the field of citation, the things that it's drawing on, making reference to, you'll see that it's not that new. It's continuous with a lot of what people were reading. The fact in some ways that it dresses it up morally is maybe the innovation. But anyway, thank you so much. We have another question from uh, Matthew Hogan, uh, who mm -hmm. asked, hey, Matthew, uh, has, as you contrast folio octavo formats for their genre associations, reading style, production cost, prestige, et cetera, would you say that those trends changed, changed much with the rise of 19th century publishers' bindings in comparison to individualized binding prior to that? That's a great question. Um, yes, is the short answer. Um, I think um, what starts to um, also, so the, the anti-novelism that I'm interested in in the 1790s, the moment when there is, I think, this bifurcation between, you know, for lack of better terms, what I call religious publishing and kind of mainstream London publishing. And this is the moment of, of where novels start to be condemned um, by religious authorities. It's a moment where it's, the, it's through that condemnation that in certain ways the genre crystallizes. Um, the term novel comes into very definitive use in the 1790s. 
um, other other terms had been used, um, uh, history, letters, um, lives, and other, other kinds of genre terms are are getting portrait are getting uh, thrown around, and novel is what kind of crystallizes. Once that happens and um, publishers kind of get in on it. Um, and also at this point, like novels have been around like, in some form for the better part of a hundred years, but now there's a name to attach to it. And publishers start to very deliberately um, market texts as novels. Um, if I had to um, pick a kind of uh, maybe decisive case, I would, I'm prepared to guess that it might be Walter Scott, um, but I don't, I don't know that for certain. Um, but certainly Scott is, is enormously like influential as a genre, but is, is a huge kind of um, economic, he, he's an author who makes a lot of, he writes a lot of books, but he makes a lot of money and people, um, and there's a lot of sets of Scott's novels. Um, and I think, um, I think that that's, uh, that's definitely part of the story, but it's a good question. Hi, we have another question from Nathan Douglas. Hey. Hey there, Nathan. He says, hi. Hi, Jordan, glad to see you. I really appreciate, or I, I really enjoyed your book, uh, your book's material history of the novel as a physical, not only discursive form. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how, about, about how your argument about the material form of the novel interfaces with or pushes against other accounts of the novel that have perhaps taken its material history for granted in order to make arguments of a different order. For example, Anderson's argument about the widespread character of print capitalism as a material basis of 19th century bourgeoisie nationalism's imagined communities. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. Um, this is, in some ways, like this is the book I haven't written yet. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm actually uh, working on these things. Um, something happens to you, like you turn 40 and you suddenly like are interested in economics. And I am, I find myself, um, or maybe whatever, it's 2020 and everybody's a Marxist now, but um, I find myself getting really interested in the kinds of economic history. So, so the Anderson argument, but a lot of arguments um, in the historiography of the book sort of presumes that the books are commodities, they are exchanged, they are, they are produced by industrial labor and exchanged at market prices um, to anyone with ready money. So they are, they are commodities, no one disputes that. Um, but the economic aspects of the book trade are usually kind of taken for granted. Like there, there, there is an economic footing. Um, something like religious societies giving books away for free challenges that. And while there are economic circumstances to the publishing of books and there are economic circumstances that are motivating uh, religious societies, voluntary associations to make decisions about how and when they're printing and what they're printing, these aren't, these are books that are being, this, this is an aspect of book history, right? But these things aren't then being exchanged as commodities. They're being given away as, as devotional tokens. Um, in the book that Lara Cohen and I edited on African-American print culture, we noticed through a number of the essays in that book, a similar phenomenon where um, you have African-American authors who are very interested in the circulation of their texts. They're not necessarily interested in making money off of them. They're not opposed but that's not why they're, they're not there to be in business. So um, while the historiography um, of, of the field of book history has kind of presumed that there is an economic, that there's a relationship between book history and the history of capitalism, there are a number of cases where this doesn't bear out. And this is something that I'm, I am trying to, to get a handle on, trying to research. Um, 
I did spend a little bit of time to answer your question in terms of the research I've already done. I did spend a little bit of time trying to understand like, um, everybody knows Everybody knows that the novel is really important to English national identity, to, to the, the Anderson argument, to kind of the imagined community of the British nation. Um, I was, I was tracking and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm relying on secondary sources here because I, I don't have the competence to do the economic history myself, but I'm trying to find things on um, research on like GDP in Britain in the 18th century. And the moment between 1750 and like call it 1775 in that quarter of the century, which is when the novel is, is really in ascent, um, the national GDP goes down. And there's presumably other reasons for it, but um, it doesn't seem like novels are having a huge economic, I mean, they become the thing, they become the kinds of books that people want to read and want to buy, um, but they don't necessarily grow the market, if that makes sense. Like people are reading them instead of other things, which I think is what religious authorities are complaining about. Um, so I'm, I'm, I think that the economic and, and in that sense, the material side of the history of the novel is a little bit more complicated than I was even able to figure out. And, and it is what I am um, condemning myself to spend the next 10 years trying to, trying to unknot. So Nathan, um, catch me then. But it's an excellent question that I, um, that I hope to have a better answer to eventually. I know this is a really annoying thing to do because you're at the beginning of this 10 year journey, but I <laughs> wonder if you could tell me a little bit about this. Like, talk to me a little bit, a bit about the shape of this project that you're working with. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know yet. Is the, I, don't know, I don't know what the, the narrative form will be, but, um, but I am just, I, these are the questions that I'm just trying to track is um, what is the relationship um, between the, the history of the book and the history of capitalism effectively, which, which I, think, I think there is widespread agreement sort of takes off toward its industrial forms in the 18th century. Um, and I'm just trying to kind of, you know, track these, these different developments. I'm leaving genre behind. Unless it comes back, we'll find out. But um, but the thing I was going to say was that um, in the historiography, and a lot of this is coming out of the the French, um, the Annal School, um, folks like Roger Chartier, like really brilliant book historians, doing incredibly detailed work. But one of the kind of one of Chartier's questions, one of the kind of classic questions um, for the French in book history is, um, do books produce revolutions? Or do revolutions produce books? Hmm. And right, like, 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 did 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 the French Revolution happen like because of Rousseau, which is which is the joke that gets made in Les Misérables, like this is the fault of Rousseau, um, right? It, that, that's a nineteenth-century reckoning, right? Is 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 the revolution the result of a shift in ideas, and this is the kind of Enlightenment account, or does the revolution happen and then produce different ways that we understand books that maybe get projected retroactively or maybe don't? Um, but that maybe also foment things like the bourgeois novel in the 19th century. So this is the question. Do um, books produce revolutions? Do revolutions produce books? I find myself wanting to, to get into this not as a, as a history of ideas question, but actually as an economic history question. Um, and, and so I, I've, been, I've been in the weeds a little bit trying to understand things about pre-revolutionary censorship in France and copyright, how it looks different than it does in England or in the United States, um, how the transition to capitalism uh, with the advent of the French Republic looks different than the transition to capitalism with the advent of the American Republic, which yet looks incredibly different than the transition to capitalism in the Haitian Republic. 
Um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm poking around. Um, if I'm able to answer these questions, I hope you'll agree, like this might be an interesting account, but I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. Um, but these are the things that I'm, I am trying to think about. Um, but it is, it is insofar as when novels or books is, um, it is still me being a literary scholar, which is what I was trained to do and kind of thinking about genre and thinking about literary form in relation to a material history. I find myself moving away from that and actually kind of getting into the history history. But, you know, again, like, um, like all, all things that are repressed, literary may return in my account. I, I kept <laughs> a few years and we'll know. But, but that's, that's where I am at the moment. Yeah, and um, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that in addition to having excellent resources for somebody who's interested in book history, as you well know, we have a program in political economy and society, uh, which, <laughs> uh, you know, Kathy Matson, I think would be very interested in this and perhaps you'd be interested in a, in a fellowship when the time is right. Noted, thank you. <laughs> All right, so we have another question. Um, from uh, Marcy uh, Dinius. Hey, Hi, Jordan. I'm a bad friend who hasn't read your book yet. But I'm curious about uh, questions you're considering with respect to the history of racial capitalism and the history of the book. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, that's the thing I didn't say, but um, I, um, but it was my incredibly good fortune to have, um, to, to work with Harvard University Press, wonderful to work with at every level, but they sent this book to the best imaginable readers. And I got like really thoughtful and encouraging and, but also like really helpful readers reports. One of them was from Elizabeth Maddock Dillon, who I've known for years and, and admire hugely as a scholar. And she laid out an argument in her readers report about how this book, which has very little to say about race, actually was like an account of racial capitalism. And, um, and, it was a really, there's a moment in the acknowledgements where I say like, you know, how much I appreciated the Rouge Report, but due to limitations of time and patience, I couldn't do everything that was recommended. This is exactly what I was talking about. Um, that uh, it seemed to me that there was a, a naughty and complex history here that I didn't, uh, that I had gotten too far along in my writing before I realized I didn't have an account of. And so part of what um, this second, this next project is trying to do too, is to is to think, if I'm thinking about the relationship between the history of the book and the history of capitalism, um, that's absolutely history of racial capitalism. Um, one of the ways that we look for um, the presence of non-white people in, in the history of the novel, but in the history of book production is in terms of authorship. And this is the thing that, um, that uh, Lars and my edited collection was trying to expand on. Um, there are more categories of book production. There are more aspects of the history of the book than authorship, important as it is. Um, and so what I'm, what I'm in some ways trying to figure out how to produce an account of, figure out how to produce a historiography for is not just a relationship between the history of the book and the history of capitalism, but the history of the book and the uh, unmarked and unremarked upon racial dimensions of and colonial dimensions of capitalism. So I'm looking, I mentioned I'm looking at France and I'm, I'm still interested in the United States. Um, Haiti is an emerging, the, the new world revolutions of Haiti, the printing, uh, which starts as French colonial, but then then becomes um, something else under the Haitian Republic. Um, first, the kingdoms and the Republic. But anyway, um, that is interesting to me. I'm trying to to produce an account of it. The differences here are interesting. France as a kingdom that becomes a nation. The United States as a set of mercantile colonies that become a nation. Haiti as a plantation that becomes a nation, and so our plantation colony. 
And so I am, I am interested in these different capitalisms and um, how they might produce different, different kinds of histories of the book. Um, but again, at the beginning stages, but it's, it is, um, it's a quite, I, I'm, I appreciate the question in part because I, I was able to give an account of what I was doing without mentioning the, uh, the racial and colonial aspects of, of what got me interested in this. And um, I should stop doing that because they are absolutely central to the project. So thank you. All right, I'm gonna give the last question to Cheryl Thurber, uh, who writes, in the 19th century, uh, excuse me, in the 19th century United States, most of the US religious voluntary, so voluntary associations were not giving away their materials, but were selling them cheaply. Yes. Um, uh, the two I am thinking, or that I'm most familiar with, are the American Sunday School Union (ASSU) mm -hmm. and the American Tract Association, uh, the American Tract Society (ATS). Mm -hmm. ATS use um, what is this? Cal Porters, who sold the tracts, and A ASSU continued to um, job lot their printing and stereotyping. In fact, they emphasized that they did not own presses, etc. Do you know why they would not emphasize that? I don't offhand. Um, I know a little bit less about the 19th, like, uh, but this book, the book that I wrote basically stops in 1900, although there's an epilogue that carries us forward. Um, and, and, the, and I know things about the 19th century, um, I like to think, but the depth of my, of my knowledge uh, drops off there. Um, I did mention drug societies though, so it's a super fair question. Um, what I can tell you is that um, in Britain in the 18th century, I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out if voluntary associations are giving away tracts and other things for free or whether they are charging like a nominal, like minimal cost. It was, it seemed to me to be a detail that the archives themselves equivocate on. Um, and it's not something I pronounce in my account, but it, but it, is, it is my impression. Um, one of the things that seems to be recommended by especially more affluent voluntary associations in Britain in the 18th century is that they recommend that society members, society members are, are poning up money to um, have these texts printed. They then ask, the, the society asks its members to then buy them and give them out for free. So there is a cost attached, but it's not attached to the, the you know, unwashed poor who will eventually read it. It's a cost that comes out of the society. So, so the people are, are effectively paying for these books twice, once as subvention and once as commodity. Um, this is recommended in society manuals. I don't know how widespread it was in practice. It's certainly something that is talked about, but again, like to actually find the record that shows me that this really happened was, was not easy to land. Um, but I think, um, I think if what 19th century track societies are doing is that they are uh, at, a, at a very minimal or nominal cost, trying to you know, recoup some expense more in the aggregate than in the individual case, um, that's not inconsistent with what was already happening in the 18th century and in Britain. But, um, but I, uh, despite trying to research this in some amount of detail, like I, there, are, there are details that seem um, ambiguous. Um, uh, but anyway, um, I'm sorry to give you a non-answer there, but, um, but it's a great question. Well, um, I think we are just about on the precipice of eight o'clock and the longest week I think many of us have endured for a while. Um, thank you, Jordan. This was wonderful. Thank you very much for having me. Um, thank you for tolerating my uh, technical difficulties. And um, thanks so much, friends, for coming and on for the great questions. And, um, you know, 
there's no place I'd rather be than a library company. So it's nice to um, it's nice to have a, a virtual encounter there. Well, you're always welcome. As I said, Peace Fellowship. And in the meantime, to all of you, pick up a copy. Not only is it a remarkably sophisticated book, but it's also quite a nice material object. Uh, and you could support an excellent press by purchasing it through the link that I put into chat. And of course, if you like this, we're going to keep going forward, even if like American democracy collapses all around us. We're still moving ahead with this. Aaron Powells and Eric Piola, our um, director of the visual culture program, will be leading the first part of a two-part fireside on art and spectacle in the 19th century United States. Hope you all can join. Thank you again, George. Thank you.